Man, Shannon, thank you for sharing that. I know that that was not comfortable for you, and uh, man, I needed to hear that. Yep. So I, I think for us, man, it's important that our church hears stories of just the miracle of God changing hearts. And that's the most immovable object in history is the human heart. And when he moves and actually changes someone, man, it is life-giving to hear about that. So thank you. Uh, got your Bibles? Let's go Second Peter. Uh, we're in chapter 3. Uh, so Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, and I, I want to give a couple caveats before I start. Tonight, this passage is very detailed. And so this is going to be not preaching. It's going to be straight up teaching. It's going to work more like systematic theology where, I mean, we're listening to Peter, who is this aging fisherman, and he is giving the most, like, detailed, nuanced answer to a major question, which is, is Jesus for real coming back? That's the real question he's answering. So that's the first caveat. The second caveat, man, I have a love-hate relationship with to be continued uh, episodes or to be continued movies or things like that. Uh, so me and my kids and Amy, we sat down and watched. You ever seen that show, The Masked Singer? Y'all know what that is? My kids love it. And it's like they put these giant mascot masks on celebrities and they sing songs. You got to guess who it is. So we were watching that last night and we get to the end of the episode and they're about to unmask this one singer and they get to the end of the episode and they're like, ah, got to come back next week. And you'll see who it is. And we we're like, dang it. Ah, I guess we'll go to bed, you know, and so like, no, we, we watched the next episode, stayed up way too late, but <laughs> what I'm saying is tonight is going to be one of those, it's going to be a to be continued episode, where at the end of this, you're going to have to say, huh, got to come back next week, and you'll hear the rest of it, all right, so let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3, Second Peter chapter 3, all right, is Jesus coming back, that's the question, is Jesus coming back, because for real, it's been so long. It has been a really long time. It's been 2,000 years. And if you think back, didn't Peter and the New Testament writers seem to think it was like really imminent? It seemed like these guys were like, hey, don't get married. Hey, don't, you know, don't get too involved in your life. Jesus, he's coming back any second. Like, keep your eye up. He's coming any second. There's a lot of verses that you can read that, that seem to say, man, it's, it's coming any minute. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. 1 Corinthians 10, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom, on us, the end of the ages has come. That's Paul writing. Hebrews 10, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like You should see the day drawing near. 1 John, children, it is the last hour. As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, and so we know it is the last hour. 1 Corinthians 7, here's where Paul preaches. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And he goes on and skips down. He says, what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. 
So from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and let those who mourn as though they weren't mourning. Let those who rejoice as though they weren't rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Because the present form of the world is passing away. Even Peter says in 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So in these passages, it seems like Peter and Paul and John and Apollos they all seem to believe they were living in the last days. And to be real, every generation since has thought so. Every generation has said, man, could, and man, uh, the Lord could come any day. It's been over 2,000 years, though. And things are continuing today just like they had back then, even way back since the beginning, since the patriarchs at least. Is it intellectually responsible to believe that Jesus' is coming is actually soon? That's the question. If Paul believed it was so close that maybe you shouldn't even get married, for where's the promise of this soon coming? That's the question for today. That's the question that this text asks. And that's the question that Peter is gonna answer. Now, let's pause. All right, so again, this is teaching, not preaching. So we need to remember where we came from, all right? So in chapter one, Peter said, hey, we're not following myths. We are eyewitnesses to this stuff. And we have the prophetic word, the true prophet's not least of which is the scriptures. Chapter two, he said, now false prophets have always arisen and they'll continue to rise, but see, they're not following truth, they're following their sensuality. This is the real reason for a lot of false teaching. They're gaming for something else, for money, sex, or power, or a combo. And he goes on in, in chapter two and said, their condemnation is not idle, the destruction isn't asleep. See, God is going to spare the righteous and he's going to destroy and punish the wicked but not on our timetable. And he finishes the last chapter saying, these false teachers today, they revel in the daytime. Their eyes are full of adultery. They entice unsteady souls. They promise freedom, but they're enslaved. They hear truth. They seem to turn to it, but then they return back to the puke. Remember from last week. That's the setup that we got to have in mind, what Peter said thus far. Now in chapter 3, he's going to return to the same theme, the same feel that he had in chapter 1. This is now the second letter, verse one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter moves from blasting these false teachers back to his tone from chapter one. He actually echoes the same exact words he used in chapter one. If you think back to chapter one in verse 13, he said, I'm gonna stir you up by way of reminder. Remember Brody's illustration with the chocolate milk. You gotta stir it up, get all the way to the bottom and stir up by way of reminder. And he said in verse 20 of chapter one, knowing this first of all, he's returning to those same phrases to show him he's picking up where he left off. Now in the second letter, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, and then he's gonna say, knowing this first of all, in verse three. And where, what, what he's calling them to is to remember, remember, remember. That's his main message, remember. And that is a theme that goes all throughout the scripture. You remember in Israel, these guys were called to remember the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember, remember. They were indicted so many times because they failed to remember, remember. Even in the New Testament, in Ephesians, it tells us, remember where you came from. Remember, you were once far off. You were once separate, but now you're made near. We're even called to remember by a sacred ceremony, by the Lord's Supper. Remember his death. Remember, remember. Remembering is one of the most sincere forms of worship 
and of sanctification in the scripture. Remember, remember. So what should we remember? Verse two. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He wants them to remember all the way back past Jesus, all the way back to the Old Testament prophets, but he also wants them to remember Jesus' commands and these apostles after Jesus. Uh, Kent Hughes says it's like a threefold cord. Here's what I want you to remember. The holy prophets' predictions, Jesus' commands, the apostles' public preaching. And he's calling them back to remember this prophecy. And you remember he did this in chapter 1. In chapter 119, Joseph was, uh, was preaching when we went through chapter 1. And he said this in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, man, that's one of my favorite verses. I, that verse is so rich. And when Joseph was teaching about it, I had a, a kind of an illustration in my mind I, that, that kind of I went to. Because you think about, he says, Peter's talking to these guys. He says, we have the prophetic word more confirmed. They're actually living in a day where they're watching prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus. They're seeing these things happen. And he's saying, man, look at what we have. The prophetic word is just coming alive to us. And he says, it's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the sun comes. I don't know, many of you guys have found yourself reading early in the morning. The illustration that popped in my head is like during your quiet time early in the morning, earlier before the sun's come up and it's dark outside and you turn on that lamp and you get your hot coffee there and it's all nice and you got that lamp is so warm and it's lighting up the word and you just spend time with Jesus and it's, it's rich and it's real and that light's so important and warm right there. It's illuminating this. Until the sun rises, then everything changes. And you, the whole room starts to light up, and the whole outside starts to light up. And when the sun, for us, where we live, when it finally pokes over the mountain there, the whole little valley just, and just lights up. Because you can see not only the sun, but by the sun, you can see everything else. And I think this is the picture that Peter's painting of prophecy and the second coming where he's saying right now we have the prophetic word that's shining like a lamp and it's good and it's real and it's illuminating. But one day, the sun is gonna rise. One day, Jesus is going to come back and illuminate and make bright everything. He's at, we're gonna know as we're known. We're, we're gonna see fully. Right now, it's through a glass dimly, but one day, the lamp is not gonna be needed anymore because the day will dawn and we'll be with him. So he's saying, I mean, we have the, these prophecies we need to remember. Remember what's come true already that you've seen confirmed, but now he's gonna say, remember what's yet to come true. And he's alluding to the second coming because this is where the false prophets, that this is where they falter. The teaching we're about to hear is why we need to remember. Listen to what Peter says in verse three. Know this, first of all, that scoffers, will come in the last day with scoffing, uh, following their own sinful desires. He's saying one of the predictions that have come true, you think about these predictions of the second coming, one of the predictions that have come true is that these mockers, these people that are making fun, poking fun at, of the scriptures, they're gonna come in the last days with scoffing. They're gonna follow their own sinful desires. See, Paul predicted these guys were gonna come in Acts 20, more immediate prophecy. He says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men 
speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Then Jesus, before that, in Matthew 24, he specifically talks about false prophets are a sign that the end is coming. He sat on the Mount of Olives and his disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this stuff happen? Like, when's the second coming? He says, and what will be the sign of your coming and the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus said, see that nobody leads you astray. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. One of the signs of the end that we can take to the bank is false prophets. And it's crazy because what Peter's doing right now, this is part of his nuanced argument. It's really advanced for a fisherman, if you think about it, but this is the Holy Spirit moving. What he's doing is he's taking out the legs of their argument before it begins, right? Because what they're arguing is, Man, is Jesus really coming back? Where are the signs of Jesus' coming? And they are the sign of Jesus' coming. Their false teaching in denying the second coming, they're demonstrating how close it is. It's crazy. Their false teaching is a sign. And it says they're following their own sinful desires. We saw that back in chapter 2. When you see false teaching, it's almost always taught so as to enable sinful living. Aldous Huxley, he's a well-known agnostic, and he once confessed this. Is the universe possessed of value and meaning? I took for granted that there was no meaning because I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. As no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously a liberation from certain political and economic system and a liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Do you see what he's saying? The reason I came up with this philosophy of meaninglessness, I just took for granted that the world didn't have meaning because I didn't want it to, because that would interfere with what I wanted to do sexually. Why would anybody deny the second coming? Because without a coming judgment, all actions are permissible. All right. Here's the content of the false teacher's teaching. Verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Because ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning of the creation. Here's the content of the teaching. Where's the second coming? That's it. It's poking fun. It's a scoffing. It's constructed in this familiar form of making fun of the word, all right? In Jeremiah 17, it says, Behold, they said to me, Where's the word of the Lord? Let it come. Malachi 2, You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him, or by asking, Where's the God of justice? Psalm 79, Why should the nation say, Where's their God? Psalm 115, why should the nation say, where's their God? Micah 7, my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where's the Lord your God? Joel 2, why should they say among the people, where's their God? It's mocking. Where's the second coming? We haven't seen it yet. Wasn't it supposed to be really close? See, they have to use ridicule because they have no content. They got no content that's stronger than the prophetic word and Jesus and the apostles' teaching. When anybody starts arguing using incredulity, like, I can't believe it. Like, you really believe that God's coming soon? When that's their main argument, you know they're struggling. You know they got no content. The goal is that they want to live how they want to live. They want an eschatology that fits their immorality. But the result is that Peter's hearers are going to lose hope 
So Peter's preaching that the people might have a strong hope. So here's the weak fact. So their argument is, where's the promise of the coming? And here's the weak fact they used to hold up their false teaching. Because ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. How do you know Jesus is coming back? Today happened just like yesterday, just like the day before, just like the year before, just like the decade before. Man, nothing's going to change. It's just going to keep on going. It's happened that way ever since creation. Interesting that they include creation. So it seems like they don't deny God's creation. What's also interesting is their timeline. Look at what they mark. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything happens as normal. Who are the fathers? The patriarchs. It's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, really. It's, you, you think about, what their argument is, everything has happened the same since Jacob. Since Jacob, we've seen no change at all. Why would they use that time frame? Think about it. And Peter's very sharp in picking up on their argument here. But obviously, they're denying the huge intervention that's happened of Jesus coming. They're denying that whole intervention. But their argument is simple. The laws of nature are constant. They're unchanging. The sun goes up. The sun goes down. It Season follows season. Thousands of years, this persists. You know what's going to happen tomorrow? Same thing. Same thing's happened since the patriarchs. Same thing's going to happen in the future. It's an ancient, but it's also a current argument. There's a guy named Albert Schweitzer around 1905. All right, I told you this is going to be nerdy. Y'all ready for some more classroom stuff? Albert Schweitzer around 1905, he wrote an argument that really persists to this day. And his argument basically says, I'm just just going to summarize it instead of reading it. He says, okay, way way back in the day, Jesus wasn't God. But he thought that the kingdom of God was going to happen on the earth, like that they were going to overthrow Rome. And so he started out his ministry thinking, we're going to do it. We're going to overthrow Rome. And he's preaching, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's going to happen. But then he started realizing, shoot, it's not happening. So sensing his failure, he says, Jesus sent out the 70 disciples and said, y'all go make it happen. And then he's like, oh, man, it's not happening. So he thought, all right, I'm, maybe God wants me to suffer and bring the kingdom of God. And so he goes to the cross. And at the end, on the cross, is what Albert Schweitzer says. On the cross, he realizes his failure and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the problem was, says Schweitzer, he'd already preached, I'm coming back soon. And things like, some here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God, and this generation will not pass away until the end. Well, then his followers started dying off. And so the early church had to amend the message and say, okay, Jesus thought the kingdom was coming soon, but it didn't. He thought he was going to return, but he didn't. So we're just going to have to start preaching that Jesus is going to return someday, and then someday turns into a generation, and then two, and then ten. And the church still, ever since then, the same generation repeats. This is the teaching that's been said. uh, Y'all listen to NPR? Not long ago, there was an interview on NPR that Bart Ehrman, he's one of the professors at UNC Chapel Hill, that he did, and he's talking about why it's impossible to believe that Jesus is going to come back. And he says every generation, 10 years before that, 10 years before that, every generation that says that, you can trace it all the way back to Jesus. It says Jesus predicted the end was going to come in his generation, and of course it didn't. Ehrman says, I want to read this part. 
They're scholars who want to see all this talk about the coming judgment of the earth and the catastrophes that are going to happen as pure metaphor. And I think the reason they want to see it as metaphor is because if you think that Jesus literally thought there was going to be a coming into the age, well, it didn't happen. So then Jesus would be wrong. And so many Christians are uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus could be wrong. So you have to say it as metaphor. You have to decide whether this is metaphor or to be taken literally. And I'm going to skip down here and he says, the apostle Paul definitely feels Jesus is coming back right away. That Jesus is going to be this cosmic judge and the earth is going to be transformed. And Paul describes it not in metaphorical terms, but literally what's going to happen at the end. So I think, says Barterman, I think the desire for Jesus not to be literally meaning this is rooted in an understandable theological move. You don't want Jesus to say things that didn't come true. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? I know this is a lot of nerdy um, quotes that I'm reading here. What he's saying essentially is, everybody back then thought the end was coming soon. They predicted it, and it didn't happen. So they had to adjust theology and say, soon means 2,000 years, because we can't afford Jesus to be wrong. And the argument today is the same as it was in Peter's day. Ever since the patriarchs, everything has kept on going. All them thought was going to change. Here's the thing. Peter's not ignorant. Peter, he's preaching. I want to say this. Peter knew he wasn't going to see the end. Remember, Jesus told him how he was going to die. Y'all remember this in John 21? It says, truly I say to you, Jesus saying to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. He showed Peter, you're going to be crucified. And after that, Peter turns and says, well, what about John? <laughs> and Jesus is like, don't worry about John. You're good. You just follow me, right? Because Peter knew he, he's not ignorant. He knows Jesus isn't going to be in his lifetime. So what Peter does is he's going to, in this text, he's going to use three arguments to, or three facts to destroy their arguments. He's already really used one, so there's four. He's already revealed the fact, hey, false teachers are going to come at the end. Here they are. It's near the end. But let me give you the three facts that this aging fisherman uses to destroy UNC Chapel Hill professors today and detractors in that day. Verse 5, they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Okay, those people that preach, Jesus ain't coming back. Everything's going to happen like it was. Peter says, they're deliberately overlooking that God created everything. And the first time I read this, I was like, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense. What? That God created? How does that, how is that evidence that he's coming back? But think about it. Here's fact number two. God made everything and he holds everything together. Yeah, the sun comes up and goes down like it always has, but why is the key question? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there's no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. Day after day, the created order preaches God's sovereign hand is at work. Jeremiah 31 Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Listen to this. If the fixed order 
departs from before me, declares the Lord, then Israel will cease from being a nation before me. You see what he's saying? The very fact that the sun still stays in his fixed order is evidence that God not only exists, but that order is a sign that God keeps his promises. Last verse, Jeremiah 33. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night won't come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, will be broken. So he'll not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. What is he saying? He's saying he promises that the creation will continue as appointed until the end. And that fact is evidence that upholds his other promises. See, the very fact that things continue as they always have, they're not evidence of God's absence. They're evidence of God's intervention. See, if God was absent for one second, creation stops. The fact that they bring up, hey, the sun rises, the sun sets. If God's absent, that doesn't happen. They're overlooking deliberately that fact, that active intervention. These false teachers ignore that the world is made by God and that its order actually hangs on his word. They're overlooking God as the ever-ruling king. They're seeing constancy as king. They're seeing the rules of nature as king. Their experience as king. Now, think about this. What's easier, to build, to maintain, or to destroy? To destroy. And if God has the power to build, and God has the power to maintain for 2,000 years, easily has the power to destroy. See, his, his argument is subtle. The fact of the constancy of nature is an apologetic for God's promise keeping. If God's powerful enough to build and maintain, he has the power to destroy. And these guys are deliberately overlooking that fact. We're called to remember they have chosen to forget, just like Romans 1 says, they deny his eternal power and his divine nature on display. Verse 6. Uh, so fact one was the very fact that these false teachers are teaching is evidence that we live in the last days. Fact two is God made and holds all things together. Here's fact three. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Why is the flood brought up? It's evidence of divine intervention. See, these guys are saying, hey, everything's just day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out. God's not intervening at all. Here's, he's bringing up evidence of the divine intervention. But what's interesting, remember, Remember the timeline they gave? Ever since the patriarchs, things are continuing. Why did they start at Jacob? Because they wanted to leave this part out, the whole flood of it all, right? They're saying like, ah, it's not like God's gonna destroy the world or whatever, and Peter's like, yeah, except for that one time he did though. Like, right before the timeline, you're, talk about selective memory. He's saying, by means of these, God created by his word and through water and by means of his word and water, the world was destroyed. You are deliberately overlooking that. Paul's, or I'm sorry, Peter's painting a picture. The time before creation was like this chaos where there was darkness and water and he pointed out that God created through the chaos and his word upholds the order of creation until this day. But the flood points out that when God who was holding back the chaos decided his hand of sustaining turned into his hand of wrath, and basically the floods that were held back clapped together over the earth. Verse seven, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see Peter's argument. He's saying, man, these guys are saying, 
where's the promise of his coming? Everything's continued on. And Peter's saying, yeah, because God's making it continue on. And the fact that it continues on is evidence of his sustaining hand. And you're saying everything's continued since the patriarchs. Yes, but remember before that, God caused the destruction of the world. And now he's looking to the future and says, uh, by the same word that, that created, the same word that destroyed the world then, by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The same word that created, the same word that destroyed, now holds back the next destruction, Peter's saying. God's wrath is stored up, and it's not like charged up like a temper. Like we, if you get mad and you, you boil over, it's not like that. It's way more scary. Now, it's scarier than somebody losing their temper. Someone calmly choosing wrath is terrifying. And the Almighty calmly choosing wrath, that's what's stored up for the ungodly. Now, here's where the to be continued happens. That's the end of our passage for tonight. This wrath is stored up. But here's what Peter's telling them. You can't buy these guys' argument from ridicule or from morality or their flimsy argument of the uniformity of creation, man, you need to look back at the promises. Look back to Jesus. He's our hope. And I want to preview. Fast forward to verse 10 of chapter 3. Peter goes on to say, the day of the Lord will come. That's it. Jesus is coming back. He always keeps his promises. Great is his faithfulness. What he starts, he completes. That is the fact that's predicted from the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching and the apostles' preaching, that threefold cord. That is what we can bank on. That's our promise and our hope. See, these guys are teaching just to uphold their immoral lifestyles, but the result is these people would lose their hope, and Peter is trying to turn their hope to this, the day is coming. Hebrews 6, by two unchangeable things. I want to just leave you with a couple of verses that, that talk about our hope. In which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What he's saying is we have a sure and steadfast hope because God doesn't lie and Jesus has gone on before us. Second Timothy 4 is Paul talking. At the end of his days, he said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Do you look forward to it? Because what's waiting on us at the end of that race isn't wrath stored up. It's the crown of righteousness, his righteousness. When we, Jesus took our wrath already so that we can get his righteousness. So the second coming only brings hope for us. First John 4. So we have come to know and to believe the, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. We can have confidence on the day of judgment because Christ lives in us. In the last verse, Romans 8, 1. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's all our hope. No condemnation, just hope. No wrath, just righteousness. And that is the good news of the second coming. These promises, these are our lamp in the darkness right now. We cling to them. We hold fast to them. Because one day the day will dawn. Sure as the sun rose, that day will come and Jesus is coming with it. And that's all of our hope. Now I said that Peter is going to use four facts to debunk this sort of teaching. I've mentioned three. The last one's going to come next week because the key question is why? The key question, y'all think on it this week, talk about it in small groups, but the key question is why? Why has God waited so long to return? That is the crucial and most beautiful part. I'm going to have to show up next week to find out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this teaching and I thank you that your return is soon. God, we know that your word is sufficient to answer difficult questions around us. And even right now on our radios, people are asking the same questions and, and using the same accusation, using terrible facts that they used back in Peter's day. And I thank you for letting Peter answer these things so systematically in such a nuanced way to show us that even the fact that the sun rises and sets, that that argues that you're coming back. The fact that all things hold together, that you haven't withheld your hand, the fact that you destroyed the world before and that you hold back the wrath so that all would come to repentance. God, we thank you for that. And we hope in your appearing. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.